Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. I just called to say I love the Stick to Wrestling podcast, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I want to thank Stevie Wonder for writing and performing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to encourage you to follow me on Twitter. Or just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has Morocco and Maine fighting with chairs in his avatar. I also encourage you to join our Facebook group. If you like the podcast, you'll love the Facebook group. I'll tell you guys a little quick story. I worked with a woman who swore up and down that technology would kill us, that we could not handle it. In a a weird way, I'm inviting you. Yeah, come to Facebook, come to Twitter. These are like the worst things that have ever happened to us, okay? I mean, and this was, this woman was telling me this like 25 years ago. That's the surprise when all we really had was email and chat rooms or chit chat rooms, as Tony Soprano likes to call them. Listen, don't use, I want to encourage you, don't use tech, Facebook, Twitter, whatever else you got to mess with someone else's life. We had that going on today. It's Monday the 11th. And I mean, just do your part, man. Don't do it. Don't be an asshole. It's as simple as that. Life is so much better if everyone would just like live with that saying, don't be an asshole. And also remember that Facebook is not a news channel. Don't listen to that guy who's, I don't know, spreading hateful messages, but whatever. With all that said, I want to bring on my guest. Uh, he is known as Tamale in Facebook groups and all that stuff. Uh, message board legend, Max Levy. Max, thanks for coming back. Oh, hey, thanks for inviting me back. Glad to glad to be here. You know, there's a, a bar here in the Twin Cities that I like, and it does have a sign right behind the bar that says that you know, all patrons must engage in human contact uh, or human conduct, I should say. So I totally am, am with you on the uh, the idea of don't be don't be an asshole. It's, it's simple. It really is simple. Uh, but anyway, I, I thought you were going to say, like, you have to have human contact because about two weeks ago, I went out and got some pizza and three kids about like late teens, early 20s were having a meal together and they were barely talking to each other. They were on their phones. It was insane. No, I, I, I have been that guy with the with the phone. In fact, uh, for uh, a particular reason, a, a group of friends and I, when we got together a while back, our uh, significant others all told us, you know, everybody has to leave, you know, has to leave their phone in the car. You have to actually talk to each other since you get together so rarely. Well, the, the girls all had a good idea. Indeed. Indeed. To, Today, we're going to talk about a a subject that Max suggested. Uh, this show is going to be about wrestlers that could have been bigger, and we each have a top 10. Max, as the guest, I would like to start with your number 10. Oh, okay. Uh, hang on here. I've got to flip through my pages. I was ready to, uh, was ready to begin from the, from the top here. So ah. I'm going to go with my... Uh, Let's see, here we go. My, I'll admit, I actually wound up with 13 guys, but I'm going to cut off a few, and I'll go with uh, number 10, John Nord. You know, I, I look at him as a guy who he had a lot of size. You know, he was very strong. He could bump, and he wasn't afraid to take bumps. Um, you know, he wasn't you know a very good worker in the classic sense that you know you 
weren't going to get, you know, Dean Malenko out of him or, or, or even, you know, Bruiser Brody necessarily, you know, which is the obvious comparison there. But, you know, he had a lot of potential. You know, he showed it in Mid-South early. Then he went to the AWA. But, you know, as the years went on, it wasn't long before he had basically, uh, you know, completely fizzled out. I, I think, to me, the thing that stands out is he learned the wrong lessons from Bruiser Brody or he tried he to did. apply the lessons he learned before he was in a position to do so. You know, you're, you're not Bruiser Brody in 1987 you're john nord you know you don't get to play hardball with promoters about money and about doing jobs and you know next thing you know he's in the wilderness for a few years you know wwf brings him in doing the berserker as a comedy heel you know that eventually fizzles out you know he could have had he played his cards right he could have come in while hogan was still there and gotten a big money run you know instead he just you know kind of fizzled out you know he wound up in wcw when they were giving away free money in the late 90s just you know, working on WCW Saturday night and worldwide, you know, putting guys over, nothing big. And, you know, then he was basically done. And, you know, there there's an alternate universe where he had a much better career. Well, I will say Berserker is my favorite song from Clerks. Max, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I agree with you so much that I had John Nord as my number one. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> and you're right. You know, here he is in 1986 refusing to do a job for Kevin Von Erich at the Cotton Bowl. And it's like, dude, you have to do this job. It's, it, Kevin's the only Von Erich wrestling he has to go over. Yeah. It's and the, the guy says no. For David and Mike, you know, Kerry's on the shelf. You know, they've just turfed out Lance. You know, Kevin's the only one. And, and Nord doesn't want to lay down and, and take a pin. And it wouldn't have hurt him. It, it really yeah. wouldn't have. It was a, a big enough event. But now we are right around the same time. And here's the biggest reason why I think John Nord blew it, why he is my number one. He had the opportunity to become the Vladimir Pietrov character in the NWA. And he wanted it, but he didn't want to shave his head. And the Vladimir Pietrov character had a shaved head. This was just the way it was. In 1986, every Russian male was bald, mm -hmm. and it was such a wasted career opportunity, in my opinion. I mean, you know, he was going to get the big feud with Nikita Koloff. He was going to get, you know, he was going to get everything that character got out of it, and he had a lot more physical charisma, I thought, than the guy who who actually got it, uh, Al Blake from Out Where You Live. Yep. And then, of course, Blake wound up going to prison, I want to say, fall of 1987. But, I mean, it, it, like I said, I, I thought he really squandered an opportunity. And like you said, I am very surprised he never went to the WWF and had the big run with Hogan. I mean, I, I guess maybe he didn't want to do a job, but he yeah. lost out on a lot of money there. And, and I would imagine, too, that, I mean, granted, they brought him in later as Berserker, but it was all comedy. The best run he had was with Undertaker in 92, and that's only because Taker was supposed to go post-WrestleMania 8 with Papa Shango, and Warrior was going to go with Sid. But Sid, after a month of working with Warrior, quit. Uh, hell, it wasn't even a month. It was two weeks of working with Warrior, quit. So they moved Shango over to uh, Warrior, and we got that classic feud. And uh, <laughs> oh boy, then, uh, then uh, you know Berserker got to work with with Taker. But you know, I, I want to say probably by you know '88 or so, the word was out on this guy, and and you know Vince could have his pick. You know, he's not going to deliberately go bring in somebody who's going to be a problem. No, and you're right. If you're if you're with the WWF, you're going to do what Vince says for the most part. I mean, some guys got away with some stuff, but yeah, I, I thought 
you know, when I, I looked at him in 86, 87, I mean, he was a really big guy. I mean, even Mid-South in, in 1985, really big guy by pro re- even by pro wrestling standards. And, you know, I, I at the time I was wondering, why is he still in the AWA? Why is he not on a bigger stage? Yeah, just, you know, a guy who didn't I don't think he really understood the business, to be honest, because if he did, he wouldn't have made some of the choices he made. No, and he wasn't making big money anywhere else. So I, I think, you know, there there's an, an alternative universe where the Vladimir Pietrov character had a lot of successful years. Now, Max, before I give you my number 10, who were the three guys, the, the last three out, the guys who didn't make it for you? Well, you know, one of them would be uh, Blitzkrieg, if you remember him from uh, from oh, yeah. from WCW. You know, I happened to see a dark match he was in because they did Nitro here. Uh, so I saw him before he was even on TV and people were just amazed at what they saw. And he basically wrestled for a year, retired at 24 and never looked back. And Good for he, him. He's somebody that if he had kept going, you know, he probably would have destroyed his body given the style he wrestled. But, you know, think about him, you know, doing Ring of Honor, some of the other indies of, of that sort, Chikara, you know, in the you know decade or so beyond WCW, you know, he would have actually probably fit in great, but you know, he decided he didn't want to do it. Another guy on my just didn't make it list would be, and maybe he should be higher, but I don't know much about him, but a guy by the name of Don Diamond. You know, he's somebody that, you know, he had kind of a Terry Taylor, Brad Armstrong vibe going on as a baby face. He worked in Los Angeles. He worked in Mid-South, Florida, Knoxville, you know, the Dallas, Fort Worth area right before world class. Got a lot of New Japan bookings. And he did one Madison Square Garden appearance because he was taking on Tatsumi Fujinami. And Fujinami correctly realized the WWF had no one that he could work with and have a good match for New Japan TV. So he brought Diamond with him as his opponent, and and they did some stuff that was beyond what the the Garden fans were seeing at that point. And then, I don't know what it is, circa 82, 83, he just completely disappeared. And that I have a Don Diamond story. Let's have it. Okay. Uh, 1999, I think it was, he reached out from it to me, and he's like, you know, I have no footage of my career. Can you help me out? Well, of course. You know, and I, I did it for free. And, you know, I, I got to talk to him on the phone. He was doing well. He owned a trucking company in Utah. And I asked him the question. I said, Don, you know, why did you just basically disappear? And he said he figured that he hadn't made it yet. And if he hadn't made it yet, he was not going to make it kind of like Butch from Pulp Fiction. And then, you know, it's like, OK, and he was a cool guy to talk to. And I was happy to send him a tape, make him a tape. And uh, then we find out that, well, when he was in Florida in like 82 or 83, he was part of a really big drug bust. So I learned that maybe two or three years ago. It was in the paper. There's a newspaper clipping out there somewhere. So I guess maybe that's when Don figured, oh, if I'm going away, I'm never going to make it. Yeah, that all the prison will will make it hard to make those road dates. (laughs) All right. Who was your other guy? Um. You know, it's a, an odd thing, you know, the consideration of, you know, who didn't make it. You know, sometimes you think of the guy that shows a spark and he was around for a few years and then he disappeared. And then sometimes to me, like the guy who didn't make it is also the guy who had a long career and put it into college football and NFL terms. We all know that Matt Leinert was a gigantic bust, but Carson Palmer had a long and, and pretty prosperous NFL career. But I don't think anybody can say that Carson Palmer became in the NFL what we thought he could be coming out of USC. 
So in that vein, one of the guys that did not make my top 10 is Sabu, because I think he got a little bit too into the gimmick, a little bit too into the mystique, doing a little bit of the stuff I think his uncle, the Sheik, did, kind of learning the wrong lessons and the way that Nord learned the wrong stuff from Brody. And so he just kind of reached a certain point of his career, and maybe he was happy with it, but you know, he torched his bridges in New Japan and in WCW and in All Japan. And then he was in the WWE for a while, and they eventually let him go. And you know, now he's you know, at the point where he's still you know, going around on the indies as kind of a broken down, broken down guy. But you know, he had a chance there in the mid-90s you know, if he could have found that midpoint between completely destroying himself and not wanting to do jobs and combine that with something that WCW could package and you get your New Japan opportunities, it could have been something different for him. But maybe he made it just well enough on his own terms not to make the top 10. You know, it's funny. People forget that in 94 and 95, he was all the rage amongst the um, the so-called smart fans, maybe the early Internet fans. I mean, Sabu, you just couldn't get enough of the guy because he did things that had never been done before. And then everyone else started doing them and Sabu just kind of lost some of his value. Yeah. And he got too far down the, the rabbit hole of doing the garbage matches and. Yeah, I, I won't say that he never did jobs, but it seemed like it was very rare and rare to the point that it may have been an issue where he didn't want to lose to anyone clean because he was worried that it would hurt his mystique. But I think, you know, he was worried about that at a point where it didn't really matter anymore. No, you're correct. And as a matter of fact, I mean, I mean, we were at a point in time where Sabu versus Taz was a dream match and it was mm -hmm. headlined to pay-per-view and it was just a crazy time in wrestling history. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the buildup to that, and they kept putting it off because they were having trouble getting the pay-per-view clearance. So I think they had like a year, maybe not a year and a half, but a year and a quarter, a year and a third build to it before it finally went down. All right. And uh, do you have one more? Uh, let's see. Do I? Yeah, I'm going to put this guy outside the, the top 10 just because, um, you know, he had a, a great career and he had a long career. But it's another one of those alternate universe theory kind of deals. You know, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, you know, it's a little bit forgotten now. Uh, but when he got to the WWF in the spring of 1987, he was doing a bit more of an exaggerated version of his Mid-South character. But there was still a sense that this is a tough guy, that, you know, he's not somebody to be messed with. He's not a clown. And then, of course, the infamous, uh, you know, drug bust pullover, whatever, with Iron Sheik happened. You know, they sent him away for, you know, whatever it was, you know, four or five months. They bring him back. And after he comes back, that's when, you know, the comedy stuff with the stomping around and the making faces and the, you know, the tongue sticking out and the hole and all that stuff happens. And, um, you know, he slowly but steadily becomes kind of the, the clown prince of the WWF until his gimmick is complete comedy by mid-1988. Now, granted, he was, you know, working in the WWE as late as what, like, you know, 2006, 2007, something like that, when they brought him back for a while, and he's still out there on indies, and he's one of these guys who isn't completely destroyed because he ended up working a much safer, calmer style. But, you know, you wonder if they had not taken that route or if he had gone right from the WWF to Crockett, if they were willing to take him, you know, maybe things could have turned out a little bit differently as far as, his career as a headliner is concerned. I was wondering openly in 1987, why Crockett was not bringing him in. Um, I mean, if, and assuming he was really fired from the WWF, which some people question, but that's what the WWF put out there. 
He wrestled one match at Paul Bosch's retirement show, uh, summer of 1987, and he tore his hamstring, not pulled, tore. And that was, you know, that's supposed to be just an agonizing experience. And I think that took something out of him. And he just figured out that, hey, you know, I don't have to work hard, so I'm not going to. Absolutely. Yeah. No time for bumps. You know, no time for anything too physical. I mean, in a way, he's, you know, figured out the the business and mastered it. You know, he was doing the absolute least to get the absolute biggest reaction. And the fans, you know, they dug the comedy. But, you know, there's still that sense that, you know, could he have been something much more? Definitely. I, I also remember in 1988 saying that, OK, this guy was great two years ago. And now he is the worst wrestler, the worst in-ring performer working for a major group and he was he was by a long shot and yes i'm aware that andre the giant was still around so that tells you how bad duggan got absolutely yeah it just you know especially you know the the feud he had with andre speaking of him in 88 was you know a b-show headliner but you know after that you know i don't think they used duggan on top again and it was all mid-card comedy and yeah it's you know if you were looking for a, a technical masterpiece he's not the guy you wanted to look at and you know, the interviews in, in Mid-South always had an element of comedy to them, but, you know, there was at least some groundedness to keep the, the thing level. I'm, I'm mixing up my, my cliches, but in the WWF, it was all it was all comedy, all all goofiness, all shtick. Yeah, in Mid-South, he came across as the big lovable jock who was having a good time in his interviews for the most part. Um, and he did some great interviews in Mid-South. It all went it all went south after that. Here's my I had five guys who were just who were just out. Um, number 15 might surprise some people. It is based on the fact that I had two conversations with two different people who swore up and down that if they had just let this guy be himself. Uh, he would have been an all timer. I'm not even sure what that's based on, but I, I've been told this guy had just the best personality and he couldn't show it off on TV. Duke the dumpster Drosy. So it's oh, based on nothing but hearsay, but it's what I was told. Yeah, I bet you were all expecting that, right? Duke the Drums of Drosy. Yeah, I, I have to admit that that's one name I did not expect to, to hear tonight. But uh, yeah, he just he probably is a guy that just came along at the wrong time. You know, that was that 93 to 96 kind of lost era for the WWF where too many silly gimmicks, you know, too much cartoonish. Let's aim it at the kids booking. Um, you know, he might have done better if he'd been able to stick around until, you know, 98, 99, or maybe just, you know, if he'd had his chance a few years later or if, even a few years earlier. Yeah, that was really a lost period for the WWF, and it, it felt like an 80s fad that was still going on in the 90s. Number 14 may surprise some people. Tully Blanchard. Tully had a big career that ended quite prematurely when he a failed a drug test for the or allegedly failed a drug test with the WWF and B WCW said, well, we're not going to hire you for what we agreed to hire you for, which is a real dirtbag move. But I think Tully had five or six, at least good years left in him before he just left the business. I thought about including him. The only reason I didn't is that even though he had some good years left in him, I think that his, absolute peak was over and that you know for instance he'd gone from being a guy that could hold the the u.s title and you know a guy that you could think about maybe as the world champion to now he's a tag team guy with iron and i think he was probably heading on a downward trajectory but it would have been a gradual decline 
especially since they kept bringing back the horsemen again and again. But I think he had kind of had his peak. Otherwise, I, I might have put him on my top 10 as well. Yeah, he was going to get a big push in WC uh, in the NWA in 1990. Um, you know, I mean, Flair had a lot of influence. Everyone was going to be happy to see him on TV again. And, you know, it, it, we all know it just didn't happen. Uh, my number 13 is Too Cold Scorpio. Who when we when I first saw him, I'm like, oh my god, this guy's going to be a huge superstar in the business. And I've been told he just couldn't keep his head in the game and he couldn't keep himself in shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, if you look at him from WCW to ECW and then the Flash Funk era in the WWF, you can see that the weight gain was noticeable. And you know, he did some spectacular moves. That of course, uh, the more you saw them and the more people did them, the less spectacular they became. And you know, he just never seemed to to find his, uh, I don't know, he never seemed to find his place. I mean, maybe you could say it was in ECW, but, you know, ECW wasn't a place at that point that I think you could homestead, even though a lot of guys did, I guess, now that I think about it. <laughs> I mean, when I first saw him on that Clash of the Champions, I'd never heard of the guy before. I mean, I was like, wow, this is a major superstar about to happen. And obviously he did all right, but you're right. If you're plateauing in ECW, you miss the boat. Number 12, and let me explain, Owen Hart, I think was just not, he should have been a bigger star before he became a bigger star. There were a lot of years where, where I was like, you know, why is has WCW not brought this guy in? Why has, the, why did the WWF give him such a small role? And I was told by someone who knew him, and this is what, like 91, 90-ish? Uh, you know, I, I knew someone who knew Owen, who was in the business. I'm like, what's up with this guy? And basically, he just wanted to spend time with Martha. So good for him if he did what made him happy. Yeah, yeah. And I believe the thing, too, with with Owen was, you know, he was that spectacular high flyer coming out of Calgary, going to New Japan. Even his earliest uh, WWF run as Blue Blazer and when he had that WCW cup of coffee. And then he uh, he got hurt somewhere along the line, you know, hurt himself and basically eliminated all the high flying and he did a great job of adapting to, you know, being a more ground game kind of wrestler, you know, a guy who used a lot of the, the psychology. He was born to be a heel. It's almost sad to, to think that, you know, he didn't turn heel sooner, but you know, it's kind of a, a, a case where, you know, a lot of what made him special was the fact again, that he was doing things that few people did or no people did. And then he didn't do them anymore. And what he did instead was, you know, more of that. Let's get the most out of the less you know, the most out of the least, as opposed to doing anything very spectacular. Yeah, I, I do know he injured himself, and you're right. He did an excellent job transitioning into, you know, a, a not using that high-flying style. Uh, my number 11 might surprise some people. I, when I first saw Shane Douglas in UWF in 1987, then I saw him in Continental in 1988, and then he was one of the dynamic dudes in 19. 19- 89, I looked at a guy who had a lot of potential. I mean, forget I, that gimmick was a loser, meaning the dynamic dudes. But when I watched him wrestle, I saw some legitimate athleticism. And then I see him do interviews, and he was really good on interviews. And, you know, I'm just like, wow, why is this guy not in the WWF as intercontinental champion? That's how highly I thought of him. And as we know now, Shane has a reputation for not exactly having his head screwed on straight. Yeah. Uh, I, I've told the story on the show, be- I, I think once before, but I was out on the beach with someone who was in the business. And this is 90 or 91. And I expressed my, my feelings about Shane Douglas. 
And the guy just kind of rolled his eyes and went, oh, my God, that guy, forget it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a guy that I, I wish I could. Yeah, I mean, he burned a lot of bridges. He didn't really play the political games right, even when he did play them. Like, you know, he tried to join the radicals in going to the WWF. And, and of course, the WWF by that point didn't want him. So, you know, he actually, like, got himself out of WCW for uh, a few months before Russo got power and brought him back again. You know, he just couldn't seem to get out of his way. And, you know, I will sympathize with the fact that the click clearly played some, you know, some games with him as far oh, as yeah. using their booking power. But I also get the feeling that, you know, not that he, I don't want I'm not saying that he deserved it, but I'm saying that, you know, by having a bit of a, a big mouth about things and, and not playing the political game well, he may have made himself a, a target more than he needed to. And this was a time when Shawn Michaels allegedly, more than allegedly, I mean, everyone knew he would just like point to someone, pick someone out and go out of his way to make their life miserable, like every day on the road. And you know, supposedly Shawn's cleaned up his act and good for him. But I mean, you know, him and his friends made Shane miserable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that Shane was you know, bitter about it you know, not just months later, but, but years later, like legitimately angry, bitter about it says that, you know, there were some, you know, bad things and some bad blood that bubbled up there. Oh, I mean, we, I'm sure you've heard the story. Scott Hall, like just checked in at an ECW show, like, Hey, how's everyone doing? And Shane got right in his face. And this time it wasn't Scott having people behind him. This time it was, it was Scott being by himself and Shane having backup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can imagine that didn't go so well. Somewhere in Florida, Tampa, I think. <laughs> yeah, it didn't go well at all. My number 10 is probably on your list, Max. It's Buddy Landell. Um, he yeah. is number 10 on mine and not higher because I thought Buddy, he was great. I thought Buddy from 84, 85 is one of my all-time favorite wrestlers, but he had a ceiling and he couldn't be a dollar store Ric Flair forever. And I just wonder, you know, what would have happened, how he would have changed that role from like this 24 year old punk trying to be Ric Flair to a 31 year old now seasoned wrestler. And it just never happened for him. Um, but obviously he he flipped out before a television taping at the end of 1985, where he, he no showed a t television taping where he was going to get the rocket push. Baby doll was going to leave Tully Blanchard and associate herself with Buddy Landell. It would have been, you know, and he already had the national championship. So who knows what but 1986 would have looked like had Buddy Landell not, you know, A, just missed a TV taping, but B, was belligerent about it. Yeah, he was my number eight. He's number eight on my list. And yeah, he's just a guy that, you know, in the mid to late 80s, even into the 90s, he could not get out of his own way as far as staying in shape, you know, you know, stopping the partying, getting serious, sticking in a territory, making himself either attractive for the WWF to bring him in during the no steroids era when, you know, his his body would have been less of an issue as long as he was in shape. And, and even when WCW brought him in in the early 90s, but, you know, they didn't push him. You know, it, it is a case where he was his own worst enemy. And I believe he admitted as, as much. He has admitted as much. And uh yeah, buddy, I remember seeing him at the, let me see, in 86, he came back to Crockett. Supposedly, Jim Crockett wanted him and Dusty Rhodes didn't, and he just never got out of Dusty's doghouse. 
and he showed up in the UWF during their dying days, and Buddy was that. I'm sorry. I mean, you can't be a professional wrestler and being in that kind of shape. Yeah, he went from uh, you know coming into the the main Crockett to getting farmed farmed out to Central States when they were in charge there, and then he quit and goes to Watts and. Yeah, like you said, he was not in shape and he didn't last long, maybe a month, month and a half at the most. And and he just, you know, did his deal of, you know, every once in a while he'd pop up in Memphis, you know, work indies. The AWA brought him in for a taping or two in 87 and he didn't stick. And just, uh, you know, the prime years of his career ended up really getting wasted. He got much more serious circa, you know, 95, 96, but you know, really his window had closed. No, I, I agree. And like I said, that was his ceiling because now he's in his mid thirties and, you know, being the nature boy, buddy Landell just wasn't going to cut it. Uh, all right. So who was your number nine, sir? My number nine, another one of those guys who, you know, actually had some outstanding career, an outstanding career, had some outstanding years, but my number nine is Barry Windham. You know, the deal is that he was 33 when he ripped up his knee in the middle of 1993. And then, you know, he had the one match the following year where he came back as a mystery opponent and was you know, just grossly overweight and just actually depressing to see him in that shape. And then, you know, he goes away for a few more years. Then he pops up in the WWF doing the stalker gimmick in 1996. And from there, he was just basically punching the clock. And his career as a full-timer was more or less done at the age of 40. You know, but his career as like a, a top line, you know, this guy you can book around as your top heel. And he's a great baby face, too, in your company kind of guy. You know, 33 when it was over. And, you know, when you think about how... uh I'm looking for the right word for this. I guess, when you think about how long wrestlers last and how you can still have a prime career into your 40s, the idea that he was completely done as anything of value uh, after mid-1993 is just amazing to me. It just seemed like whatever physical problems he had, like his his heart and desire kind of went out at that point and never came back. Barry Windham is my number two. All so. right. I mean, here's a guy in 1988, they, they finally turn him. He has the, the year, uh, uh, I mean, just a great year. And it looked like he could be, he could have been Ric Flair's heir apparent. And then things go sideways with him and Jim Hurd. Um, he winds up in the WWF. And I remember hearing that he was going to the WWF and being, thinking that, okay, I thought enough of him where I could say, he could be Hulk Hogan's opponent at a WrestleMania. That's how much I thought of him. And then he tur- he goes from the Barry the the Widowmaker Barry Windham to just the Widowmaker, which made me say, "Uh oh, this is a loser gimmick." And then he's on primetime wrestling, uh, going to draws with Tito Santana, who at the time had turned into kind of a mid carder, and he was not with the WWF for very long. It was just a a very disappointing uh, collapse in his career, in my opinion, because I think he should have been an all-time great, like a long-term NWA champion. Yeah, you know, the WWF thing was weird. There were injuries. Um, you know, this, uh, at some point while he was there, that's when uh, Mulligan and Kendall got arrested on the counterfeiting charges, and he was never accused of anything, but I'm sure that that didn't help him. Yeah, I'm sure in the WWF, they were probably thinking, boy, if he gets named in this, we've got to get him off TV right away. So let's not push him. And, you know, looking through his WWF match results from, you know, 1989, 90, however long he was there, you know, it kind of goes in, in spurts, you know, there was never that sustained run while, where he was getting the big push and the feud that was really, you know, given a lot of attention on TV. And, you know, the worst thing too, is, you know, he goes back to WCW in 1990 and, 
you know, it seemed like it took him a while to kind of get back to where he'd been in 88, 89 and, or, you know, in, in, you know, with Crockett and early WCW and, you know, then in 91, 92, 93, he found himself again. And then, you know, then the injury happens. And so he just ended up, uh, you know, never quite reaching his potential. No, and it seemed like when he came back in 1990, he didn't seem like the same Barry Windham from two years ago. It was like, I don't know, it was like the fire went out, you know? No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think he got it back for a while after that. But when he first came back in, I think, you know, he wasn't, his head was not in the game. You know, I, I mean, you know, granted, you know, Mulligan and Kendall had just, you know, pled, pleaded guilty or pled guilty, whatever the proper term is. And had just been sentenced to federal prison for two and a half years each. And coming off the injury, I, you know, I think some of that hurt him. I think, you know, maybe there was a, a blow to his confidence from the WWF not pushing him, you know, possibly as well. You know, maybe that sense of, hey, you know, I'm getting I'm getting big money here and they don't really want, you know, they don't really make me, you know, go all out. So why should I go all out? You know, we talked about guys who got, you know, the, the wrong advice from bad people. I mean, I've always heard that, you know, uh, Blackjack Mulligan was in Barry's ear a lot. And sometimes he wasn't always giving him the best advice. Yeah. And Mulligan, if you look at him, I mean, mid 80s, I think like in 1984 alone, he was in the AWA. He was in Florida. He was in Crockett. He was in the WWF. You know, he had a. a he was a guy that burned, you know, that liked to burn bridges and jump territories a lot if things weren't going the way he wanted. And it's very easy to see that, you know, he might have been telling Barry, you know, do this, don't do that, don't agree to that, and sending him down a road that, you know, maybe he shouldn't have traveled down. I agree with you. And like I said, I've, I've heard more than once that, you know, Blackjack was in Barry's ear a little bit too much. Uh, my number nine is Larry Cameron. Larry was a big guy. He had a, a good look. He was a good enough worker where he could uh, go to Japan a few times a year. And I always wondered why WCW did not scoop him up. And let's be honest, it's 19, you know, we're talking the early 90s when late 80s as well, where a company like the NWA, you know, could use a person of color in the ring. Okay. And why, you know, why not Larry Cameron? It never made sense to me. Yeah, thing is, if. They actually brought him in for a couple of tapings. I want to say latter part of 1990 uh, with Teddy Long as his manager. You know, he maybe made a taping or two at the most. I remember that, you know, you know, he was on worldwide wrestling and it, it caught my attention because, you know, he was a, a guy that was in Eddie Sharkey's PWA forever. So, you know, he was somebody that I was uh, well aware of. And, you know, then, like you said, all of a sudden he was just gone. And I want to say at some point he may have, had a WWF tryout, but, you know, obviously he never made TV, never got hired. And, you know, if you think about his physique, he was just made for them. But for whatever reason, they didn't go down that road. You know, it's funny. I do not remember him in w in WCW. And I was paying really close attention to 1990, but I, I don't yeah. remember every little thing. And I forgot it's, it's he was a sharky guy. Too. It's one of those things, too. If you like, like didn't watch that week, you probably completely missed him. Like, maybe two tapings, maybe just one taping. Like he might've made like an episode of worldwide, an episode of, of pro. I don't even know that he made the Saturday night show. It's one of those deals where, you know, you blink, you miss it. And it's like, it never happened because, you know, they, they show him once, they never mention him again and it's over. Uh, like I said, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I don't remember because I would have heard of heard about it. But like I said, I, I don't remember everything. All right, Max, who is your number eight? Uh, my number eight, my number eight was, uh, was buddy. 
so I can uh, Buddy Landell. So I can uh, uh, jump to number seven, or we can uh, we can flip it around. I'll I'll get in my number eight because I'm okay. a very have to be in order kind of guy. Absolutely. My number eight is Billy Jack Haynes. He was on the cover of so many magazines in 1984. He was going to get a huge push in the WWF. I mean, not a Hogan-level push, but the next level down. Um, He left the WWF for whatever reason. I mean, he quit every promotion he worked for, like, in the mid-'80s. He walked out of Florida. He walked out of World Class, where he was getting a, a pretty big push as Sunshine's main squeeze. And then... The NWA was going to bring him in at the beginning of 1986. He was already there. He was working. Um, he worked Starcade. He worked uh, a couple of other dates. And then January 4th, 1986, he was supposed to win the tournament for the vacant TV title for the NWA. And he was supposed to be the number three baby face, like right behind Magnum TA. And of course, he had some sort of a falling out with Dusty Rhodes. And it was over for him at that point. Uh, later in 86, he went back to the WWF, but he was just another guy. Um, I think had he managed his career more effectively, he would have been he would have made a lot of money and he would have been a big name. Yeah, he was my number five. And he's one of those guys that, you know, another it seems like a recurring theme, but another one, another one of those guys who, you know, jumped from promotion to promotion, you know, always seemed to do it with bad blood, you know, could never stick anywhere. Uh, you know, he even uh, ran against Don Owen in, in Portland for a while in 88, running his own indie and, you know, could, should consider himself lucky that that Owen didn't hold the grudge and, and brought him back in uh, to work the main promotion after that uh, challenge failed. And, you know, he, WCW brought him in as black blood in 1991 and it didn't really uh, fly at all. You know, he went to Memphis circa 94, 95, and I've always believe that he was doing that to showcase himself to the WWF and WCW for another run, but they wouldn't even bite at that point. He, you know, like you said, I mean, he was, you know, one of the biggest things going circa 84, 85, even at 86. And then by 87, he's just another guy. And by 88, he's pretty much off the radar from there. I agree with you. I mean, and it's hard to, if you, if you didn't live through it, it's hard to describe what Billy Jack mania was like in 1984. He went from the, uh, Portland to the Florida promotion, and he looked like the next big thing, and it just all went down the drain for him. I was in Memphis in 1995. Now, Billy Jack, his his uh, slogan was, I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't use drugs. He would say it almost <laughs> every interview. And we're in a bar in Memphis after the Monday night show, and it was definitely him, Billy Jack Haynes, with a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other. It was quite the sight. Yeah, yeah, he also, you know, I mean, some of his, uh, I don't know if shoot interview is the right way to put it, because I think they were worked uh, more than any any shoot, unless maybe he actually believed it. But you know, he's a guy that, um, you know, these past few years has not been a picture of stability. To say the very least, I have not seen the shoot interviews, but I've seen clips from them. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the, the business just took its toll on this guy. Yeah, yeah, and something took its toll. He just was a wreck of a of a human being there by the end, unfortunately. I mean, I guess by the end, I think he's still around, but yeah, it's it's not a good sight. No, definitely not. All right, Max, who is your number six? All right, my number six is you know maybe a little bit high on this list, but a guy by the name of Billy Black. 
Um, you know, he is uh, a guy that, you know, he had kind of a, a dumpy looking body, um, you know, but he had a great look as far as, you know, the face was concerned. He had the stringy hair and the mustache. He looked like a good sort of sleazeball heel. And he could do a lot of things in the early 90s as far as high flying was concerned that not a lot of guys were doing and nobody with his kind of body was doing. It was, you know, quite a sight to see him go to the top rope and do moonsaults and, you know, planchas and what have you. And he's a guy that was known for having a very bad attitude, if that's the right term for it. He burned bridges everywhere he went. You know, he went through Global. He went through Smoky Mountain. He went through ECW. He went through All Japan. Pretty sure I don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure he got a cup of coffee or at least some kind of a tryout from WCW. I'm certain that he probably passed through Memphis at some point because everybody back then did. Oh yeah, no matter where he went, uh, you know he didn't last long, and and bridges were burned. And I believe he lost his All Japan gig over not wanting to do a job to somebody, and you know that was considered one of the dream places to work at that point in the early '90s. And you know he was already in and. It, you know, getting a, a mid-card push with Joel Deaton. And all he had to do is just keep his mouth shut, show up, work. But, you know, he had to mouth off or, or refuse a job or do whatever. And, and next thing you know, he's he's out in the cold again. And he's somebody that, you know, when you consider that, you know, the WWF brought in a lot of indie guys, you know, during that mid-90s run and even into the early Attitude Era. And when you think about WCW, pretty much hiring everybody under the sun for a while there. You know, he had some money-making opportunities that he completely threw away. I did not think of Billy Black, and I wish I had because I agree with you. And, you know, you were talking about getting a Japan gig. I mean, every indie wrestler was dying to get a Japan tour. Just give me a chance. Let me show you what I got. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And Billy Black, yeah, he had the attitude or the reputation is, you know, a guy who's going over there and not doing what he was told by, by Baba's crew. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's something that you just there are a lot of things you don't do, but that really is something you just don't do because, you know, they paid well. You know, they took care of your of your transportation, of your lodging. You got a nice per diem, almost like you were on a major league baseball team or something like that. You know, not just your transportation and that they'd fly you to Japan, but they took care of your ground transportation there as well. Uh, and you had a lot of time off, you know, they, it's not like the WWF touring 52 weeks a year, you know, you do, you know, three weeks on four weeks on, then you'd get several weeks off and you could do that to go home and relax, or you could, you know, do indie bookings or pass through what constituted for territories back then. You know, if you played your cards, right, you know, you might even be able to, you know, work out a part-time thing with WCW and, uh, you know, all you have to do is just go with the flow. And that was something that did not interest him. And it's funny because in Japan, I mean, steak is incredibly expensive and is considered a, you know, a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a more than a gourmet thing. And, you know, wrestlers would have steak every night in Japan because someone would pick up the check for them. There was a line of people who wanted to pay for the wrestlers meals and drinks. So it was kind of a dream gig. Oh, absolutely. And that's why there were guys that you know, went over there, and even if they might have had opportunities, you know, to go to WCW or the WWF, uh, they didn't because, you know, why would you? Why would you give that up to make the same money but work so much harder for it? Harder in the sense that you had to work more dates. Obviously, you're working very hard in the ring uh, in, in all Japan, but, you know, guys like Hanson went over there, and, you know, uh, Doc went over there, and, and you know, before the, uh, the, the stroke 
you know, Terry Gordy and, and many others, you know, you had a chance to really have one of the best gigs in wrestling in all Japan and, and new Japan guys were doing very well in the same regard. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, like you said, I mean, Japan, it was a totally different thing. I mean, you would go over there for 10 weeks and you would come back and you'd get to spend like weeks and weeks uh, at home in the WWF. You were supposed to get every other Thursday, uh, should be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off. But sometimes you had to substitute for someone else. I mean, I know a hillbilly Jim quit when he was on the road for like uh, 70 something consecutive days. And it's like, how can you do that? You can't. I mean, it's it's guys did it, but. You really, you can't. And I think a lot of those guys ended up paying the price for it in more ways than one later on. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's the, the things they did to keep themselves entertained on the road wasn't all, weren't always exactly good for them. All right. right. My number seven is someone we talked about on the show to a great extent, you know, maybe two, two and a half years ago. Tom Zank. I, I look at Tom Zank and I'm, I'm sorry if this comes across as a little bit stuck up. But if you could put my brain in that guy's head, I think we would have made a lot of money because, I mean, he was a, you know, he had GQ looks. He was a Mr. Minnesota bodybuilder, and he was totally miscast as a baby face. It was almost like, you know, I think sometimes Zank got a little bit too much too soon when he got his WWF push after, what, two years in the ring, maybe three? Yeah, yeah, it was no more than three. I think he started at some point in 84, and then by late 86, he was, you know, coming in with Martel to do the Can-Am Connection deal. Okay, and I remember, Tom, being on Dave Meltzer's old IATA show. We're going back to, like, 99 or 2000, and Zank, I mean, he had a little bit of an attitude to him. He was like, um, you know, I should have been making as much as Rick Martel, and I was not. And Martel was was advertising me to Vince McMahon is, you know, Vince, I've got this guy and he's really good. And when I heard that, I was totally taken aback. I was like, Tom, you're not Rick Martel. You are the mm-hmm. young guy in real life on the way up paying his dues. Martel had been in the business for like 13, 14 years at that point. And it's like, you know, if that's your your reason for quitting, you have managed the situation quite poorly. But I did hear back in 1987, right after he quit, that he and Martel were wrestling the Islanders. Haku, who we all know is a really tough guy, and Tama, who's a tough guy and a little bit crazy. And supposedly they took an intense disliking to Tom Zank, and they were stiffing the crap out of him (laughs) almost every single night. Yeah, he definitely, I remember those uh, Meltzer shows, he definitely had a, a, a chip on his shoulder. and it definitely went to show that he was miscast as a baby face. You know, he played baby face, I think his entire career. I don't think he ever worked as a heel, uh, you know, from the time that he, he began in the mid eighties to whenever it kind of fizzled out for him in the early to mid nineties. And to me, like the ultimate thing of him being miscast as a baby face is when it was either when Ron Simmons won the drawing to face Vader after Sting got taken out by Jake Roberts, or it was after, uh, Ron actually beat Vader to win the title. Uh, one or the other, either the drawing or the win. But the deal was all the baby faces, you know, were out there celebrating. And, I, you know, it must have been the win because they lifted Ron Simmons onto their shoulders. And, you know, Tom Zink was just, you could never, you could not tell more obviously that he was faking his enthusiasm and that he seemed almost like kind of embarrassed to be out there. And 
it just came off as as completely insincere and fake and you never want that out of somebody that you're pushing as a heartthrob baby face no he he always came across as really insincere that's a good way to put it i mean i i think i mentioned this before if i'm tom zank in 1991, when Ric Flair has walked out of WCW, he has quit. The company is devastated. I would have walked up to Dusty Rhodes was booking at the time. I would have been like, Dusty, give me one of Flair's robes. I'm going to dye my hair blonde. I'm going to be the new nature boy, Tom Zank. And I, I stay, <laughs> we have a show out there in the archives saying I would have made a million dollars booking Tom Zank. Like this idea, I will not get off the idea. I will not get off the uh, my platform that that would have made a million dollars. Yeah, he, he if not a million dollars, I mean, it would have given him many more productive years in the business. He wasn't that old when his career kind of dried up, you know, more or less right before Hogan came into WCW. And, you know, if you think about it, he's a guy that, you know, there should have been a place for him, you know, in that 1996 to 2001 range. And, you know, he ended up you know going going nowhere. And maybe if he'd had a chance to, you know, fly that heel flag, he might have had an opportunity to, you know, really stake out, you know, not just a spot, but, you know, a spot with a push somewhere. Max, you are from the Twin Cities. Have you ever been around uh, Minneapolis native Tom Zank? No, it's funny. I I never uh, have met him, never have seen him. You know, it's funny, like I, as many wrestlers as there are, you know, who are from this area, you know, my my direct encounters and, and meetings with them are, are pretty rare um you know lenny lane comes to mind as somebody that you know i seem to see out and about and charlie norris you know after his wrestling career it kind of fizzled out was bouncing at some bars and whatnot but yeah tom zink is not somebody that i'd uh, that i'd ever run into he's someone that i have spent a little bit of time with and he's you know he is who he was in his iada performance like he was a funny guy everyone liked tom zink and you know, he could be a little bit of uh, arrogant, shall we say. But, you know, I think if Tom had just been himself on TV and, you know, played heel and not tried to be that, you know, always smiling at the camera baby face, I think he would have been great. Yeah, yeah. It's too bad that, you know, nobody ever caught that as a booker and thought, let's turn him or it's, I don't know. I'm, you know, did Tom ever go to a booker and say, you know, I want to, I want to go heel. I mean, I have to think that, you know, somebody at some point, you know, in the musical bookers of WCW would have said, OK, Tom, let's give you a shot as a heel because, you know, the arrogant pretty boy heel thing. I mean, that's a tried and true gimmick in professional wrestling. Tom, you know, could have done that quite easily and, and then branched off from that basic gimmick to something else. Uh, supposedly, Zank was one of those guys that WCW wanted to get rid of, like after watch and they kept forgetting to do the paperwork to get him off the payroll. <laughs> you want to he, know got a, he got iron cheek. You know, they, oh. they, they, they forgot to, to let go of him during his termination period and the contract rolled over. That's what kept happening. The contracts kept rolling over. It happened with Jimmy Garvin. It happened with iron cheek. <laughs> oh man. All right. Who was your number six, Max? All right. For my number six, uh, I am going with uh, Pat Tanaka. Um, you know, he was obviously very small and he didn't have the body, but, you know, in WCW, I don't think it would have mattered as much. And there would have been opportunities for him in Japan, opportunities for him in Mexico and, you know, post Orient Express in the WWF where they were, they were kind of a jobber team, but they, they got a few wins here and there. You know, he just, uh, you know, had his career fizzle out. And, you know, from what I can gather from hearing about him 
you know, he's somebody that kind of had the the reputation of being, I don't know, kind of treating pro wrestling almost a little bit more like more of a con game than it really even should have been. And, you know, the idea of, yeah, I'm just here for the money and I'm going to, you know, scrape every last dollar if it means, you know, booking somebody for a non-existent New Japan tour or, you know, selling somebody uh, a watch that, you know, is a piece of junk that's going to break down in a few days. You know, it just seemed like he kind of lost the the focus and, and he had an opportunity, you know, where, to where he was still in WCW circa 96, 97, 98. You know, what if he was in shape? What if he was acting like he cared? You know, with the cruiserweight division, maybe, you know, there was something there for him, but instead he was just a, a job guy and a fill-in. I heard a long time ago that uh, Pat Tanaka was the ultimate kind of carny guy that, you know, was always doing some sort of works to someone, you know. Um, when I when he first started out in Memphis, this is 87. I mean, I thought he was great. I mean, he would he was doing high flying. He was you know taking great bumps. He had an excellent match against Jeff Jarrett. Uh, that was, I think, part of the Jerry Lawler show. But I mean, he. You know, like you said, I mean, he got heavy around the midsection and you just can't do that and be expected to be a, a major league pro wrestler. No, no, it was definitely the wrong kind of weight. And, you know, when you're somebody like him, you know, you don't have the muscle, you don't have the size. You know, you've got to highlight your attributes. And for him, one of the things was speed. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about some of the matches that, you know, he and Jeff Jarrett had with Sato and Goto, you know, back when they were a team and and. You know, just like the just sheer speed that he would take these bumps and, and do the crisscrosses and so forth. It was something, uh, uh, you know, so it was something to behold compared to what he was later, where he was just kind of going through the motions. Yeah, uh, I mean, as the 90s wore on, I mean, you know, and like you said, the uh, the Pat Tanaka stories uh, began to go out there, you know, with the watches and, and whatnot. I mean, anyway, my number six is almost a, a category because there's a lot of guys I could put out here. And like I said, it's kind of a category, but I'm going to go with Tank Abbott because I I no longer watch UFC. I haven't for a while, but I watched the first few and Tank Abbott. I I looked at him and I'm like, man, if the WWF or WCW could get this guy, I mean, he's going to be a superstar. He just had that that attitude and he had the size and he had the look and it just never got off the ground with WCW, you know, in part because he. He just he just wasn't Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, another guy who who was in this category was Ken Shamrock. Um, when he went to the WWF, I thought we were looking at a major superstar. We're talking WWF champion. And here's where I was wrong. I thought the business was going to go one way, like more towards a UFC presentation. And no, it went the other way. It went towards the people's elbow. Ken, Ken was actually my number four and, you know, he had a good few years there. Of course, they didn't use him correctly because, you know, you know, they had a chance to have somebody doing that, you know, Brock Lesnar thing since he came back for the second run, you know, way back then, the guy that was something different, you know, something scary, you know, they didn't need to make him, you know, quite as unbeatable as they made Brock, but, you know, they sort of turned him into just another wrestler, but at the same time, he was actually very good at it. And I'm not exactly sure what happened. You know, he was, he came in in the spring of 97 and then at the end of the summer of 99, he just left and never went back. And I don't know why he didn't stick. I mean, he had a good like two and a half year run there. And if he had stuck around, I think, you know, he would have been in the, in the main mix, you know, you know, right on into, you know, at least, you know, the, the old four or five range. And, 
for whatever reason. I don't know if he wanted to go back to, to MMA. I don't know if there was some sort of a money thing. I don't know if there was, you know, some sort of a problem at home, but he left. He never came back. And, you know, he, had, he went into TNA for a while, but nothing really popped for him there. And he just missed his window. The story I heard a long time ago, this is when Vince Russo was the booker of WWF. So he's or the, the lead writer, I guess I, I should say. And, um, you know, it's, supposedly Russo is a lot more interested in Jerry Springer type stuff and not getting a UFC fighter. But the line was crossed. Russo had this thing uh, about incest. I don't know how else to put it. Right. <laughs> yep, yep. And supposedly he wanted to do an angle where Ken Shamrock got caught sleeping with his sister or half sister, whatever she is, Ryan Shamrock. And Ken was like, I can't do this. I own a chain of UFC karate dojos in California. I can't be on TV sleeping with my sister. And Russo, you know, his immediate knee-jerk response supposedly was always, if you didn't go along with everything he wanted to do, he would suddenly run out of ideas for you. And that's supposedly what brought Ken Shamrock down in the WWF. See, the the weird thing about it is that I want to say that you know, if Russo outlasted Ken, he outlasted him by maybe two or three weeks. You know, the idea that yeah, I can get I can completely go with Ken for not wanting to go along with that sort of an angle. But just the idea that, um, you know, if you you know, if once Russo was gone, maybe do you find your way back in in a couple of months or maybe, you know, you just go home, but you're not necessarily released yet. And then Russo goes to WCW and again, you find your way back in. But you know, he left, I think, a couple of weeks before Russo and Ferrara went to WCW, and and that was it. I, I think by then, though, like, he had already been cut off at the knees. Like, you know, he was had been portrayed as a guy who just wasn't a star for a long time. I, I can see that. I mean, definitely, like, his last couple of uh, of months in there, the, the, the bloom was off the rose. Definitely. All right, so I, I took your number five, so I'm going to give— the world, my number five. It is another category, but at the top of the list, I'll bet you, for some reason, I don't think you're going to have this person, but she's still active, but the WWF has totally blown it with Shayna Baszler. And if you're not watching the current product, let me tell you, she was something truly special when she was in NXT. She, no offense, Shayna, if you're listening, but she's this really ugly chick with a great <laughs> attitude. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, she is butt ugly, man, but that's good for a heel. And she, you know, she talked bad. She talked tough. And, you know, this is a, a reflection that the WWF just does not know what they're doing. They stuck her in a tag team with, uh, what's her name? It doesn't even uh, matter. Jack. Okay, yeah, thank one. you. Nia Jax, Jesus. And they had gold. They had main event gold right in the palm of their hands, and they blew it with this girl. And like I said, she's still around, but the window has closed, and she's 41 years old now. It's it's never going to happen. You give me Shayna Baszler, I will. I promise you I could make her a huge star. Yeah, she is not on my list, but I completely know what you're talking about. You know, it, she got involved with the uh, the Alexa Bliss nonsense with the doll and and. Just some of the overall goofiness, and it wasn't, you know, for somebody that you're portraying as MMA come to WWE, somebody who's, you know, a legit dangerous fighter, you know, you, you've got to stay away from the really goofy stuff and, and try to keep it, you know, rooted in some sort of reality, you know, dub, relatively speaking to the WWE, and they did not do that. 
No, I mean, as soon as they brought her up to the main roster, it, it was all wrong. Another one in this category, uh, once again, Sasha, Sasha Banks. They had gold with her when she first came up from NXT, and they they put her in a faction, and they didn't make her anything special. And once again, the window is closed for her, and it's a shame because she had so much potential when she was in NXT. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they blew it quite as badly as, as you do. But they didn't um, – I'm looking for the word for this. They didn't sustain it, and you know they had somebody that they needed to keep at a high level, at a main event level, and it's like she's not quite there right now. She's below the main mix, and she's kind of yesterday's news. I mean, I think the, you know, the idea that you know she and Bailey are baby faces and friends, and then you know they're at odds, and then uh, Sasha goes heel, and then when the the chips are down, Bailey um, ends up turning heel to help her. You know, then they've got that great heel duo thing. I thought that worked pretty well, but. Then they turned Sasha back babyface and left Bailey as the heel, and something got lost in translation, if that's the, the right way to put it. No, yeah, you, you put it well. Um, right now, Sasha is yesterday's news, and it's never going to happen for her the way I thought it was going to happen like five years ago. So mm-hmm. anyway, who is your number four, Max? Uh, let's see. My number four, well, we just uh, did my number four was, was Ken, was Shamrock. Oh, okay. All right, well. I'll do my number four, and I promise I won't overdo it again with the David Von Erich stuff. Um, but I think David Von Erich would have been a huge star in the business. We're talking WrestleMania versus Hogan level, and I will just leave it at this. He was the same age as 90 stars like Bret Hart, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall. He was younger than Ric Flair. He was younger than Hulk Hogan. I mean, he had it all in front of you. What are your thoughts on David, David Von Erich? Yeah, I mean, it really is a, a a tragedy from a from a human standpoint. It's a tragedy from a wrestling standpoint because he got a very young start. Uh, he ended up becoming good very early on and seemed to have a good mind for the business. He, you know, he got out of Texas and went to Florida for an extended period. Went to St. Louis. You know, was a regular with all Japan, and you know, it was a case where you know the sky was 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 high for him. I mean, even if he didn't have the carry or Kevin body. You know, he had that size. What was he like, six six, six seven? I mean, he was just a big guy, and you know, he hadn't really completely filled out, and you know, he had a chance to become like this Stan Hansen type badass. I was gonna say he. I, I really believe he would have filled out. I mean, his dad was huge, and he was the same size as his dad. Um, I mean, just the sky was the limit for him. And again, he he was so young. I mean, I, I, he died at what twenty four. Yeah, I believe he was 24, early 1984. Yeah, I think 24, shy of 25, um, more than just close to 23, I think. But, I mean, when you think about how young that is and how much he did just in the time that he was around, you know, then it, then you think about what he could have accomplished. I mean, that was 84, so call him 24 and 84. I mean, he would have been only in his late, mid to late 30s during the Monday Night Wars. Yeah, I mean, I think about, you know, I was 24 in the late 80s. I mean, imagine if it all just stopped right there. I mean, he was he was so young. It's such a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is too bad. And, and, you know, it's, you know, all the questions now that have, you know, kind of popped up in more recent years about what really happened. I mean, that's, you know, sad as well, because, you know, he's kind of been reduced in some ways to being a, a tabloid or just a, another paragraph in the Von Erich tragedy story. Another wow, another paragraph in the Von Eric tragedy story. But you're right. I, I I couldn't have put it better. Who was your number three? 
My number three is Marty Janetti. Oh, wow. My take on Marty is that there isn't any reason that he couldn't have had a career post-Rockers, you know, maybe not quite at like megastar Shawn Michaels level, but he could have had a career that was very prosperous. You know, the way I look at it is, you know, he just didn't have the the desire. He didn't have the self-discipline. You know, I, I, you know, check this out. I mean, he and Sean, of course, infamously got fired after a week by the WWF in 87. But, you know, Marty in early 92, when he and Sean are on the collision course for Mania, you know, he and uh, uh, a girlfriend get into, you know, some incident where they weren't let into a club. You know, they made us think of it. Cops were called. Marty had drugs on him. WWF fires him. They bring him back at the end of 92. He and Sean again are on a collision course for Mania. He passes out backstage at a TV taping. They fire him. They bring him back later in 93. He gets the Intercontinental title. He gets the uh, tag titles with the one, two, three kid, you know, still doing well there early 94 when he's still in a position where things are going well. You know, there was some sort of an incident on a, on an overseas tour. You know, they fire him, you know, they bring him back in mid 95. And at this point, each time, you know, he's come back, you know, maybe the push has been just a little bit less. And now in mid 95, he comes back as a baby face and it's, you know, not quite going as well. You know, and then he, you know, but he's still getting kind of a push. And then he and Al Snow become the new rockers and they let him go in the latter part of 96. And, you know, to me, like the point where it was clear that, you know, if the new rockers wasn't hit, the point where it was clear Marty was never going to make it was when he went into WCW in 98. And he's just basically doing his rockers gimmick there and just going through through the motions with a gimmick that should have been retired a long time ago. I mean, he was only 31 when the rockers ended. He had a lot of good years left in him in 2005. Uh, you know, to build up Michaels versus Angle at Mania, Angle brought in Marty and had a match with him. And granted, Kurt was maybe the best wrestler on the planet at that point, at least in the U.S. And, you know, he could have a great match with anybody. But Marty held up his end and looked great. You know, he and Sean did a one-time reunion as the Rockers right after that the next week. Looked great again. Uh, they signed him. I think he had some kind of legal entanglement, and they ended up dropping him. And then in 2006, they bring him in because they were appalled at how horrible all the ECW workers they just hired were, and they wanted to have Marty and Brad Armstrong and some guys like that to go on the road at house shows and work with these guys to get them better. And, you know, again, something was going on with Marty personally, and he ended up getting dropped. And, you know, he was still, I'm doing my math here, you know, he's still looking good in his, you know, early to mid-40s at that point. And then, you know, at that stage, it was pretty much all over. And, you know, what if he had you know, had the discipline to stick in a promotion, to not get fired, to get rid of the rocker gimmick and remake himself and and climb the ladder. The idea that, you know, in 2005, they would bring him in and he still looked like Marty Jannetty in 1995 or 1990 uh, and still having good matches shows that there was a lot that got missed in between, you know, when he fell off the map and then and and we never got to see it because he couldn't keep it together. That is a really good Good one on your part. I didn't even think of Marty Jannetty, but you're right. I mean, he left a lot on the table. I know after uh, there was talk that Shawn Michaels was going to leave the WWF. This is like uh, 89, 90 and go work Memphis and, you know, kind of rebrand himself. And there was a lot of interest that if that were to happen, uh, WCW wanted to bring Marty Jannetty in and use him, you know, put him with someone else as uh, in a tag team. Obviously, that never happened. Um, I knew a girl, I worked with a girl in Lowell, Massachusetts in 19, well, she was from Lowell, I was working in Chelmsford in 1993 or 1994, and this poor thing thought Marty Jannetty was her boyfriend, and I, I didn't aye, have aye, the aye. heart 
to say no. He's he's not your boyfriend. He he's your boyfriend when he's in, when he's in or around Boston. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Marty was a lot of people's boyfriends back then. <laughs> I mean, there are so many Marty stories. Marty was too much, but but you're right. I mean, he could have been a lot more. But anyway, my number three is Hacksaw Butch Reed. Um, here's a guy. You know, we've talked about this on the show before. I really think he could have been NWA champion and maybe even should have been NWA champion. Um, I mean, who thinks this, you know, the WWF goes with Hulk Hogan. If the NWA went with Butch Reed, I mean, who thinks Hulk Hogan would survive a fight with 1995, 1985 Butch Reed? Yeah, I didn't think to put Butch Reed on my list, but yeah, he's a guy that had some great years. And then when you think about when it all pretty much ended for him, you know, it there was he's another guy that, you know, there could have been much more before he left and there could have been much more after. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Butch talks about it himself. I mean, I remember in, in 80, 1986 being like, OK, Butch Reed is in central states. What the hell is going on here? And Butch talks about it in one of his shoot interviews. He was going through a hard time with drugs, quite frankly. And you can't put the NWA champ, uh, championship on a guy like that. No, no. Yeah, I believe like his wife told him, you know, you got to come home. And and so he did. And he worked for Geigel while he was there before heading on to do the natural gimmick. And it's uh, yeah, you know, it's really when you think about it, Butch, I mean, I know that Watts brought him back circa 92. But after Doom split up in early 91, that was pretty much it for Butch as any kind of a mainstream wrestler. No. And even when they put Doom together, it felt like they were putting Ron Simmons with this guy who was kind of washed up, but I mean, good for Butch. He bounced back. Doom was an excellent team. Yeah. I mean, I know they wanted to let Ron fly as a solo wrestler, but I I've always thought that they've split the team up a little early that they could have gotten a little more out of it and then split them up. And, and, you know, they wouldn't have lost anything from the, from the time they spent on the team with Ron as a single afterwards. No, right around the time they split up, they had that awesome uh, street fight against Arn Anderson and Barry Windham at Starcade, and it felt like, you know, it took a long time or a little while for everything to come together with that team, and I'm a little bit surprised they didn't turn the team babyface. Yeah, yeah, or at the very least, you know, okay, you've split up Ron Simmons and, and Butch Reed, you know, you have the feud, Ron obviously wins it, but yeah, there was more you could have done with Butch Reed as a heel after that. And they just, I don't know if he quit. I don't know if they let him go, but he was gone. My understanding was Butch was tired of the wrestling business and wanted to get into rodeo. And that's exactly what he did. But I'm not sure if that was his decision or WCW's. Um, Let me see. Is there anyone on your list we have not discussed yet? Who's your number two? All right. So for my number two, I'm going to read off a list of wrestlers, none of whom uh, are on our list of underachievers. And um, but there's a point to this. I'm going to read these names and then I will get to my number two wrestler. Uh, AJ Styles, CM Punk, John Moxley, Roman Reigns, both Usos, Brian Danielson, Matt Jackson of the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, Cody Rhodes, Finn Balor, Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, Bobby Lashley, Drew McIntyre, John Morrison, The Miz, Cesaro, Kofi Kingston, Big E, Dolph Ziggler, Orange Cassidy, Miro, Jake Hager, Luchasaurus, Dax Harwood, Sean Spears. Matt Riddle, Scorpio Sky, Damian Priest, Baron Corbin, Sheamus, Carl Anderson, Doc Gallows, Braun Strowman, Bobby Roode, Mustafa Ali, Malachi Black. They are all older than Ken Doan, who was Kenny Dykstra of the Spirit Squad. Ken is only 35. 
He got brought into WWF developmental, WWE developmental when he was 18. Uh, he was on the main roster at 19. And yes, the Spirit Squad gimmick was a disaster, but they considered him the star of that team. And when the team was split up and everybody else buried, he alone was kept on the main roster. And for a few weeks, he was part of a trio with Edge and Randy Orton. He was a guy they had a lot of plans for. You know, they considered him to be, you know, kind of the next guy in developmental, you know, along the lines of before had been, you know, Orton and uh, Batista and Cena and so on. And they considered him like the next guy in line. I know that there were a lot of maturity problems with him and that some of those maturity problems are why apparently they won't bring anybody that young into developmental anymore. But, you know, he, you know, ended up buried in the mid card not long afterwards and then was let go a couple of years later. But he's a guy who is younger than guys who have been on the main stage for many, many years. You know, guys who are getting big pushes right now. He's younger than them. You know, he had a great look. You know, he could talk well enough, needed to improve, but was was pretty decent. Could do some great things in the ring. But, you know, once the WWE let him go, you know, at that point, you know, TNA was, you know, kind of a joke promotion, even though they were national and you know, if you didn't want to, you know, go out on the indies and really, you know, kind of work that lifestyle, you did something else. And and that's what he did. And it never happened for him. And it's kind of amazing when you consider the, you know, he was kind of their, their lottery pick at one point and all the guys that are older than him that are out there making it. And some of whom we consider young or new, even at this point. The spirit squad was during a time where I had gone on maybe a five year hiatus from paying attention to any WWF wrestling. I've been watching it again now for about 14 years, but like the the middle of the aughts, I kind of tuned out. Um, so I, I really don't know much about about Dykstra, but I will say this: number one, Jake Hager almost made this list, but now that he is in AEW, maybe he's got a comeback in him. Um, I mean, you know, what the hell? The guy was an All American guard and All American wrestler at Oklahoma. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. the promoters would have killed for this guy a long well, time Bill ago. Bill Watts wishes he was around 30 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, you know, he would have given him a huge push. And he he looked more marketable than Steve Williams did at the beginning. And number two, Dolph Ziggler. I mean, that name, you're never going to get over with that name. And the Spirit Squad killed him. He's another guy. I thought yeah, there was a I time I thought he could yeah, have been they, huge. I forgot he was in that. Yeah, they sent him back to uh, developmental for a while. Then they brought him up with that ridiculous name. And of course, you you can only do what they what they let you do in the WWE. But I've always thought that you know Dolph, you know he sells too much for other people. You know, with the exaggerated Shawn Michaels bumps, even more than Shawn Michaels. You know, the name is ridiculous, but you know the hair, you know, has perpetually been horrible. You know, the outfits, the gear, whatever. You know, always terrible and. You know, he's always been a guy that's just on the cusp of something, but he's not got it in him to get over the top. Right before they put him with AJ and Big E, I was like, this guy, had the, the, the ceiling is the limit. And when they put those three together, I mean, there was no chemistry, no chemi- on-air chemistry at all between him and AJ. And I mean, the first week I saw it, I'm like, this is not going to work. And it didn't work. What can I say? No, no, it it was an idea that 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 just didn't work and it put Dolph into that perpetual spot of you know being in the starting blocks you know bursting out with a fast you know 50 meters and then on the final 50 meters just 
running out of gas and, and then back to start again to start over. You know, he's, he's still there and they, they always try again, but it never really makes it. No, I mean, they, you know, they, they weighed him down with the, with the bad gimmicks and, uh, you know, the bad name, quite frankly. All right, so my number one was John Nord. My number two was Barry Windham. My number three was Butch Reed. I, are we at your number one yet, Max? My number one is unrevealed, so I'm, I'm ready if you are. I, 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 th- I am ready. All right, my number one is Bam Bam Bigelow. You know, here's a guy. That That's a good one. When he started, I mean, he has this incredible look. I mean, it's not like today where everybody, even like kids, seem to have tattoos. Back then, tattoos were pretty rare. And the idea that you were going to have your whole head tattooed was like, you know, something out of a movie or something from, from outer space. It was just not something that people did. And it made you immediately notice him. He was humongous. And he wasn't like WWF ripped bodybuilder built, but... You also didn't look at him with that heavy body of his and think fat slob like you might for, you know, Jerry Blackwell or one man gang. He could do all these, uh, you know, agile, you know, cartwheels and other things. Some of it was, you know, a little bit more for effect than for anything valuable as far as the match is concerned. But, you know, the guy had some quickness and he could move. He got a lot of mainstream press right away when he started. He went through Memphis. He went through world class, recovered from the Crusher Yurkov thing, you know, had you know, some other gigs come and go, you know, they, he went to New Japan and, you know, basically, if not the first tour, like within the first couple of tours was headlining with Inoki. Then they bring him to the WWF and all the managers want him and he ends up a babyface, and he's the last sur- survivor for the baby faces uh, before falling to Andre at the first Survivor Series. And, you know, he goes around the horn teaming with Hogan against either DiBiase and Andre in some cities or DiBiase and Virgil with Andre in the corner and others. You know, they were pushing him hard. And then, you know, I think there was an injury. I think there were some maturity problems because it all came to him so fast. You know, he ends up leaving. You know, he goes to Crockett for a while, but he's doing the New Japan thing and it doesn't really stick. And then, you know, he kind of bounces around, you know, combining Japan with, you know, WCW here and there. And, you know, did another run through through Memphis and and, and whatnot. And then, you know, by the time he goes to the WWF in, in late 1992, you know, the hype is over. He's just another guy. And they trusted him to work with Lawrence Taylor, but, you know, nothing really came of it for him. And, you know, he was, you know, kind of a a mid-card guy from there. I mean, even in ECW and the triple threat, you know, he was not the main guy. He was one of Shane Douglas's sidekicks. So he never became that, you know, megastar that it seemed like he could become. And so, you know, he's a guy that's, uh, that's, that's on my list as number one. He should have been on my list. That was a big swing and miss on my behalf. Um, I think the WWF never used him correctly. I saw him in Memphis. It was like Memphis was the only promotion who knew how to use this guy. And then the WWF brings him in, and he absolutely should have been a heel feuding with Hulk Hogan. I'm not going to say give him a WrestleMania match, but then again, it's not. It wouldn't have been out of the question in 1987. He was that, you know, that talented and looked like he had that much potential. And then they make him a baby face now like max said a guy with his head shaved with a giant fireball tattooed on his head was straight out of the carnival in the in the late 80s it was a a unique crazy look and i i absolutely would have made him a heel feuding with hogan and i also would not have given him that ridiculous leotard with the flames <laughs> all over it I mean, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, no, this this isn't going to get over. And it kind of didn't. And but he never got out of that suit. And when he 
came to, you know, the NWA in 1988, the first thing I said was get him out of that suit, give him something else and make him a heel. And they just wouldn't do it. And Bigelow himself had said that, you know, even when he was with the NWA, he was immature and he was acting like, okay, well, now I'm in the minor league, so I'm not going to care. I think, too, I think those are all great points. I think, you know, as far as him being a heel is concerned, you know, had he not gotten hurt, had he not had the maturity issues and and stuck with the WWF, I believe that at some point, you know, they would have done, the, you know, the whole deal where another one of Hogan's friends turns on him and it would have been Bigelow and he would have had his run and then been a heel from there, as opposed to the opposite, where he comes in as the heel and eventually turns baby face. And then he and Hogan team up. Uh, obviously, he wasn't able to handle the spot, so it never progressed that far. And as far as going to Crockett is concerned, you know, he was barely there just you know, long enough to build up a, a Starcade match with Wyndham and then out the door. And, you know, his momentum at that point was was permanently stalled. I, I never disliked the flame uniform just because like the the gym shorts and tank top thing that he was doing in memphis seemed you know somehow just like even by the stand you know by by today's standards with some of the gear people wear it's probably not so bad but at the time it didn't it didn't seem right and you know the the flames you know gave some color to the outfit and you know it covered up the body a little bit more to where you know if you know he you know he wasn't exactly uh paul orndorff there but yeah i can see it being a little bit on the cartoony side and and you know maybe something could have been done later to alter it yeah, I remember seeing a match from Memphis in 1987. It was Jerry Lawler and his former rival, Bam Bam Bigelow, against Tommy Rich and Austin Idol. And, I mean, you would look at Bigelow, and I was just like, okay, why isn't the NWA at his doorstep right now with a contract? And you're right, he had to get rid of that you know, sleeveless shirt and, and gym shorts look. But, you know, there's middle ground somewhere where true, you make true. this guy look good. Yeah, I remember that the, the run he did through Memphis. You know, there's at one point where he's going into the crowd after Rich or Idol. I don't remember which one, but he ends up knocking down the security railing, and the fans just scattered. Like they really believed this guy was truly an out of control madman. That was the thing. He came across as as legit and dangerous. So we have discussed everyone on our list: the guys who should or could have made it but didn't. Yep, yep, and, and and you know the thing too is sometimes you put somebody on this list and there's still a chance to to make it. And unfortunately for everybody on this list, you know some of them are are no longer with us. But you know even the ones that aren't, you know for them, you know even 35 year old Ken Doan, the chance is is gone. You know they had it and they lost it. No, that that's long gone. I, I can tell you right now. All right, last week we did last episode we did a little bit of an Easter egg talking about the Sopranos movie. Max and I are going to talk a little college football. So if you're not interested in that, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. But Max, it, we're recording this on Columbus Day. And one of the, I don't know, depressing things about college football, it's, it's depressing and it's what makes college football special, is the season is already halfway over and it feels like it just started. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is kind of sad. I mean, the college football is one of those deals where just when you are really getting into it. It's it's done. And yeah, I'm looking at the I pulled up the top 25 here just to have it in front of me and I'm seeing everybody's, you know, 6 and 0, 5 and 1 and thinking, man, that's we're already halfway done. It I wish there was more. It flies by. Now you are a big Minnesota Gophers fan. Tell me what you think of PJ Fleck. I'm a big fan, you know. I mean, I think like a lot of people, I I wouldn't say I was skeptical 
when PJ Fleck was hired because I, I tend to take a not even a glass half full attitude these days, but even more of a glass three quarters full. But, you know, there's always that worry. You know, he did well in the Mac. You know, the Big Ten's a jump. You know, can he, can he do it? And he was big with the hype and the slogans, row the boat, grab an oar. And, and that kind of thing doesn't always play so well up here. And Tim Brewster, when he was the gopher head coach, did nothing to this degree. But he did it a little bit. And, you know, it ended up being a disaster. But I think he's, I think he's doing great. I want him to stay for, forever. And, you know, anytime there's a big job that opens up, you know, immediately people around here, uh, myself included, become terrified that he's going to take another opportunity and go somewhere else. You know, the latest thing that has everyone in a panic is USC. You know, the one thing that I think the Gophers have going for them is somebody, and I wish I could remember who, but somebody in the local media that, you know, is close to, to Fleck and close to the team said that, you know, Fleck does not want to go to Los Angeles where, you know, you're kind of lost in, in everything else. And he doesn't want to go to another school where there's already a legendary coach that you've always got to live up to. You know, Saban did it in uh, Tuscaloosa with, with Bear Bryant, but, you know, nobody in Michigan has lived up to Bo uh, so far. And, you know, nobody, I don't know if anybody in, in, at Penn State will live up to Paterno in spite of, you know, how things came to a close there. And the idea is that Fleck wants to be the first P.J. Fleck. He wants to be the guy they put up the statue of. So I'm hopeful that in the long run, he's going to stick around. I look at P.J. Fleck as possibly being Minnesota's own Barry Alvarez. I mean, we're all so used to Wisconsin being at least good every year. And I remember when Wisconsin was in the toilet every single year and Alvarez stuck around. He turned down uh, Miami. He turned down Mm -hmm. Notre Dame a couple of times. And you're right. You know, now there's it's his program. He's the the statue guy. And I'm hoping PJ Fleck can be that for you guys. Oh, it would be it would be great. And yeah, I I remember wistfully those days when Wisconsin was a doormat. And I remember (laughs) they they had a game. I want to say it was 90 or 91 maybe 89, but somewhere in that range there, right at really the bottom of their depths. You know, they hosted Miami. You know, this is a point when the U was the U, you know, one of the biggest programs in college football. And you'd figure, you know, even if your team is going to take a pounding, people are going to want to turn up because, you know, the team is loaded with guys who are going to be in the NFL, you know, the next year or a couple of years down the line. And it's a chance to see a major program that's outside of the Big Ten. And you know, Camp Randall probably held 71, 72,000 at the time, and they did not even have 40,000 people in the stands. And, you know, it was on ABC, it was on TV here. And when they would, you know, do some wide shots, you just would see acres and acres of empty bleachers at Camp Randall. And a few years later, they're in the Rose Bowl. And it's been, you know, no looking back since then. You know, they have the odd bump in the road season, but all things considered, you know, every year they're one of those teams that figures, you know, if the thing, if things go right, we can win the West in the Big Ten. If we can win the West in the Big Ten, you know, then we have a great chance in the Big Ten title game. And from there, you know, you know, maybe it's uh, you know the playoff. Maybe it's going to Pasadena. But they they know they're going to be playing somewhere on New Year's. Yeah, I you know we we brought Barry, Barry Alvarez. Max was the name the name of the guy he took over for was it Don Morton? I've got to go back. I would have to take a quick peek at that. Um, Morton was there at some point, but I. I am trying to remember who was in charge. They'd had, I want to say, a guy that was around during the 80s for quite a while. Uh, you know, the guy who would have been the coach for Altoon when he was there. Uh, and then when uh, he left, I want to say that they had a guy that took over that ended up not really having much of a uh, much of a success. And he was gone very quickly. And that's when Alvarez 
wound up in the spot. I'm I'm looking right now to make sure about who it was. Oh, you're right. And Don Morton was that short-term guy. Uh, he was there just from 87 to 89, and then Alvarez came in in 90. Because Morton was running uh, uh, the Veer option, which was, I mean, it, it was outdated like 50 years before, and he's still using it. He was still using it, and Alvarez comes in, and he was, Alvarez was nice about it. He's like, I don't know what it was like when, when I wasn't here, so I'm not going to point any fingers, but we don't have any running backs on scholarship. So basically, yeah. Alvarez cleaned up a big goddamn mess. Yeah, and, and Morton was the guy who'd won a national title and played in another national title game at North Dakota State. And you know, then he wound up at Tulsa, where you know, everybody's you know, running the Veer or the Wishbone down in the Missouri Valley or you know, when that was still around. And then you know, just in that neck of the woods. And, you know, and I, he was an odd pick. I mean, I guess the North Dakota State connection you know, creates a tie-in for him. But he was kind of an odd pick for Wisconsin. And you know, it was a complete disaster. And for them to wind up with Alvarez was one of the great decisions or lucky strokes, whichever you choose, you know, in, in college football history. Yeah. I mean, he was the Notre Dame defensive coordinator and he came in, you know, wow, this is the hot coaching candidate and somehow Wisconsin got him and all the rest is history. Max, let me ask you one last thing. Um, yeah. College football playoff. Like, what do you think they should do? Honest to God, I know this will put me in the, in the minority, but I think they should leave it exactly the way it is as a final four, because I really believe when you have a final four, obviously there's always going to be a team that's number five or number six that some people say, well, they should be in there and not the team that's number four. But my general thought is that, you know, the best, if you've got the final four, you pretty much have the best four teams. You know, if you, if you go to eight, then people are going to say, oh, we should get the nine and 10 in, you know, if you go to 12, people are going to say, well, why don't we make it 16? And then you're letting in teams that, you know, don't really have a chance. And I realize that one of the great charms of the NCAA basketball tournament is the idea that you're going to see a seven beat a 10, you're going to see a six beat an 11, or even, you know, a, or an 11 beat a six, I should see in a 10 beat a seven. And then, you know, every few years, you know, you have a, you know, a 14 over a three, or, you know, one year we even had a 16 over a one uh, a couple of years ago, and it's a lot of fun, but somehow it's like, that's basketball with football. It just feels like let's get the best four teams throw them out there and, and see what happens. And I know that's not what people want and it's probably not what we're going to get, but um, I'm fine with it as is. I think four is the perfect number. Um, you mentioned basketball, maybe 10 years ago, George Mason, who had lost like uh, two thirds of their games in the regular season, it, uh, went to the sweet 16 and people were like, Oh my God, this is so great. What's great about it. <laughs> you completely negated the the regular season and in college football the regular season is everything every game counts and with four every team historically every team that needs to be in gets in and if you you know people are like oh if you win your conference you should get in why should some eight and four team from the pac 12 get in i don't get it yeah yeah exactly and Obviously, this year with Cincinnati, it's it's looking like a different deal. But, you know, the idea, what about the group of five teams? And, you know, the answer is that the group of five teams, you know, even if they have a hot non-conference game, you know, they typically are not playing teams that are as good as those that you're going to find in the Big Ten, in the SEC, in the ACC, Big 12, Pac-12. You know, I, you know, if a if a group of five team makes it on merit and Cincinnati at this point would be in if the playoff were starting this weekend, 
you know, that's just just fine. And they're going to be in the Big 12 very soon anyway. But I'm not of the belief that, you know, you've got to absolutely have a group of five team in there. And, you know, it's like you said, too, you know, it's if you've got if you start getting down to the number seven team, the number 18, uh, number eight team, you know, if you have the ninth team and the 10th team down onto 12 and so forth, you know, instead of having teams that are 12 and 0 or 11 and 1, you do start getting in the nine and threes, the eight and fours. And then at that point, you know, are they really deserving of being in a playoff? And like you said, one of the great things about college football is Saturday night, you know, watching Alabama against Texas A&M, realizing that, you know, if Bama doesn't win this, this could be the thing that knocks them out of the playoff. Uh, you know, that's what makes it, that's what makes it exciting. You know, the idea that every week there's a, a big game that matters. Iowa Penn State last weekend, you know, Penn State is now behind the eight ball because of, of the loss to the Hawkeyes. I'm with you on this. I mean, why stay home and watch Penn State and Iowa when, you know, the the lo- the winner, it should be the loser could get into the playoff anyway. I mean, I think Penn State is pretty close to done as far as the playoff goes. And that assumes that they win the rest of their games, including a rematch with Iowa, which I just don't see happening. Talking about Cincinnati, I think if they go undefeated and they have not gone uh, not gone undefeated yet, is going to get in. And the reason is because unlike Central Florida from years past, they actually have a good non-conference schedule. They they went on the highway and visited Notre Dame and beat them. And then before that, they beat a good Indiana team. So to me, that's the thing. They're, at least you're scheduling with the intent of, of getting into the playoff. You know, last year, Cincinnati had their uh, game against Ohio State canceled because of COVID. But, you know, this is they're a program with uh, with real ambition. And I wish them well. I don't think if they get in, they're going to do well. But at least we're going to find out, I think. Yeah, I'm looking at their their upcoming schedule. And, you know, the toughest game they've got coming up is uh, the weekend before Thanksgiving. They've got SMU at home. You know, SMU is number 23 at the moment. But you know, they've got uh, UCF coming up, Navy, Tulane, Tulsa, South Florida, East Carolina to round, round out the season. And then, you know, whoever uh, they end up facing in the conference title game, you know, they've played, you know, like you said, Indiana and Notre Dame early. They've done all they can do. And at this point, it's hard to see them falling down the rankings without a loss or unless, you know, they have a game where they just play like garbage and, you know, maybe scrape out a field goal to win by a point or something in the same week that maybe some teams below them you know, really take care of business against teams that, you know, they were maybe expected to have a dogfight against. Here's the only scenario where I I think Cincinnati gets left out. I hope it doesn't happen because I, I think it would be unfair if they got left out undefeated at 13 and 0. Number one, Alabama and Georgia have to both go undefeated into the Southeast Conference title game and Bama wins it. If that happens, I can see both Bama and Georgia getting it in ahead of Cincinnati. Number three, if Ohio State goes undefeated the rest of the way and beats Iowa for the uh, the Big Ten championship, I'm not saying automatic, but I can see Ohio State jumping Cincinnati. Number three, Oklahoma has to go undefeated the rest of the season, and they just played their toughest game against Texas, and they have to win the Big 12 championship in, you know, obviously the Big 12 championship game. So all four of those things would have to happen for Cincinnati to not get in. And I don't think they're all going to happen. Yeah, I think Oklahoma, you know, they're, what are they, number four right now? They're they're going to lose. It, they're, they're, they're kind of a fraud. I mean, I'm looking over their, their schedule here. You know, they, 
barely beat Tulane at home. Obviously, they destroyed West Car- Western Carolina, but you know the Nebraska game again. They won by a touchdown. You know they beat West Virginia by the skin of their teeth. They beat Kansas State by the skin of their teeth. They just barely beat Kansas. So every every game except for the you know the the Mulkies coming in with West Western Carolina, every game has been by one score or less, and has involved Oklahoma having I think to battle back from behind in all of them. You know they've got. Oklahoma State coming up still. Um, you know, Iowa State has been a letdown, I believe, but you know, that's another one that is a, a potential tough one. They've got you know, some they've got Kansas, they'll get that one, but you know, they've got some games in here where, you know, somebody's gonna trip them up if they keep playing the way they are. And over the weekend, Spencer Rattler, who just I don't know, two months ago was being talked about as the number one pick in the NFL draft, a Heisman possibility. He was benched uh, for the second time this year against Texas, and he's not getting his job back. So, and it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, you have to think he's going to be part of the transfer portal, like maybe even right away and where that all ends up. But, you know, again, Oklahoma had what they thought was going to be a major weapon and it's gone. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. I don't know if it's a case where he was believing his own hype or if it's a case where yeah, because Oklahoma's had such a great run of quarterbacks lately that people are are banking on him being the the next one. Kind of the way that you know, if you were a Miami quarterback, you know, some of the first few guys after that run ended, you know, were getting the same hype, you know, with the idea that you know they're going to be the next, you know, Testaverde, they're going to be the next Kosar, and it, it didn't really happen. You know, it could be where you know the media just got a little bit too far uh, into the hype about Oklahoma quarterbacks and didn't really you know think about you know what the actual talent and uh, execution were. And yeah, I don't think he's going to stick around if he's sitting on the bench. You know, he's a, a sophomore now. He's got two more years. He could go somewhere else, you know, start over, get the starting position and and then you know, still make his move for the NFL. Yeah, he he definitely needs to have the mess cleaned up. And I can leave all of you with one last thought. Vinny Testaverde played for the New England Patriots one year when he was 43 years old and he got in three plays. I, I oddly remembered that this week. Max, it was great having you back. Thank you for for helping us have a great show. Oh, very glad to to be here. Thanks for having me, and then hope I can come back again soon. Oh, definitely. And I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all of the great work he does. Lou does a lot of stuff behind the scenes that you know you guys aren't aware of, and we're very appreciated appreciative of him. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. 